This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm Jackie Pack, your host. I'm recording this podcast on Sunday morning, August 4th. And I woke up, like many of you did, to the news of a second shooting in 24 hours in our country. And I'm bothered by this. And I was thinking of the topic for this podcast already. But given the news, um, I've added a few things to what I already wanted to cover in this podcast. As many of you are sending your kids back to school this month, uh, maybe sending your college kids back to school this month, I wanted to spend this episode talking a little bit about unlearning, which is kind of an irony since most of our kids are going to go back to school to be learning. But I wanted to talk about unlearning, and I think this uh, correlates with what we're seeing in the American culture right now with so much divisiveness and so much violence that's happening. So I wanted to first just talk about um, a couple of things. First, we're going to delve into and talk a little bit about racism. So I wanted to start with just kind of some definitions. So when we talk about racism, uh, a definition of structural racism, right? So structural racism in the US is the normalization and legitimization of an array of dynamics, historical, cultural, institutional, and interpersonal that routinely advantages whites while producing cumulative and chronic adverse outcomes for people of color. It is a system of hierarchy and inequity, primarily characterized by white supremacy. Uh, The preferential treatment, privilege, and power for white people at the expense of Black, Latino, Asian, Pacific Islander, Native American, Arab, and, and other racially oppressed people. Now, some of the maybe like subcategories of this, we talk about institutional racism. So institutional racism occurs within and between institutions. So institutional racism is discriminatory treatment, unfair policies, and inequitable opportunities, and impacts based on race produced and perpetuated by institutions, schools, media, uh, companies, employment, different things like that. Individuals within institutions take on the power of the institution when they act in ways that advantage or disadvantage people based on race. Now, individual racism or internalized racism lies within individuals, not the institution or the structure. So these are private manifestations of racism that reside inside the individual. So I want to talk a little bit, you know, if you're somebody who is not of color, you probably grew up with some beliefs that were common, were normal. I think I've said on this podcast before uh, that um, maybe, unfortunately, the family that you were born into defines what's normal. And that can happen on a variety of levels, right? The way that we interact with each other, the way that we talk with each other, the way that we process or don't process emotions in the family, um, the ideas, the beliefs, the attitudes that we have, all of those things we are learning in our family of origin. And we're learning them at young ages where it has this ability to really get into the core of who we are and not really question those things. When I was a kid, I'm going to talk about this story later in a different podcast episode, but I'm briefly going to hit on this. So when I was a kid uh, in first grade, I remember uh, being at like a school assembly and my first grade teacher was from New Zealand. Her name was Mrs. Triboli and she was a very uh, nice, you know, as any first grade teacher you would expect. She was very nice and kind and kind of soft-spoken, but also pretty, like I would, I would say that there was a strength that was there to, for her um, that I recognized as a first grader. So we're in this assembly and I, I can get into the details later, but we were in an assembly where uh, somebody was coming and visiting our elementary school and it was a political figure. And so we were having an assembly and then we were going to do a question and answer period after the assembly or after kind of this guy got up and spoke and whatever. I don't have a great deal of memory about it. And sometimes as an adult, I look back and think that is the oddest thing to have 
a question and answer period for a political figure in an elementary school. Like what, what were we going to do anyway? So I, you know, I grew up in the family I grew up with my aunts and uncles, uh, my mom, many of them were in education and uh, it was typical when I was young to go to my grandparents' house, my mom's parents on Sunday uh, for Sunday dinner. And my aunts and uncles were there. Now, my sister and I, my sister is two years older than me. And then I was uh, the second child. We didn't have a lot of, well, there were no grandkids uh, or cousins our age in the family. You know, my younger siblings had cousins their age. But so for a lot of that, you know, my sister and I would kind of hang out with the adults, right? And so I was present for a lot of adult conversations. Being in a family of educators, there were a lot of discussions about ideas and things and, you know, things that needed to be changed. And I was present for those conversations and and taking in probably more information than I realized I was taking in. So back to this assembly at school, you know, they were opening it up to a question and answer period. And, you know, I remember I was in first grade, so the first graders didn't sit on chairs. You know, we just kind of sat crisscross on the floor. And so I raised my hand and I stood up and I don't remember the question that I asked. I'm sure it, it came from some family conversation about education and what needed to change in education. And so I raised my hand and I asked my question And if you've ever been in this experience where you say something and you can feel the energy in the room shift and you can feel kind of this, uh, I just said something and there was some tension, right? I just remember feeling like, oh, what, like, am I in trouble, right? In my family, when they were talking about it, it just seemed kind of like a normal conversation piece. But then when I asked it, I remember feeling kind of this shift in the room. And I remember kind of looking down the row of kids, my fellow classmates sitting on the floor. Mrs. Triboli was at the end sitting on a chair. And I kind of looked at her like, am I in trouble? And she just, I remember she didn't really move her body much. She just kind of made eye contact with me and she gave me a wink. But it was one of those like that I was just like, okay, Mrs. Triboli's not mad at me and I'm not in trouble with Mrs. Triboli. And, you know, it made the, it made the paper, uh, like our little local county paper, um, the next day. And, and I don't really remember much about it. I just remember, you know, my mom, like it named me in the little paper and said the question that I asked. And like I said, I don't remember what I asked. My mom kind of called me in and was like, can you tell me about this? And she kind of was reading it to me. And all I really remember about this situation is that it described, you know, a young first grade girl uh, with a shaky voice. I don't know if my voice was shaky, but they said with a shaky voice and knobby knees. And I was just like, oh, I don't even know what knobby knees are, but that sounds so rude. So that's really what I remember about that experience. But I do remember um, going back to that, like I was one of those kids that asked a lot of questions. And maybe you were one of those kids that asked a lot of questions. If you have young kids or you've had young kids, kids naturally go through this period of asking a lot of questions. And, you know, sometimes it can be frustrating as a parent to constantly be having to like answer questions and some questions seem irrelevant. But what we have to recognize is that our kids are learning. They're learning, is it okay to ask questions? They're learning, you know, maybe my parents have all the answers or they're learning, this is how we think about things in my family. This is what's right or this is what's true. So I want to talk a minute about um, how that information can come in a binary state where the binary is kind of this either or, right? It's a very black and white way of looking at the world and answering information, right? Where there's a right or a wrong. And most often things are are much more complex. They don't fit in a binary structure. Um, We don't look at things in the both and. We tend to look at them in kind of a black and white as a way to simplify information. And a number of our social ills that are systematically driven, you know, are kept alive and they thrive in the binary. Usually there's not easy black or white, right or wrong answers or approaches 
to the conversations that we need to be having as citizens, that we need to be having as neighbors and families and all of the groups that we belong to. And both and conversations can be difficult for us to wrap our head around. You know, we've recently done some conversation or some episodes about cognitive dissonance, and we've also done some conversations about confirmation bias. So if you have listened to that, right, you'll understand why it's difficult or why sometimes it's difficult for us to wrap our head around and the tendency we want to uh, be comfortable or to not have to, or to simplify information and not have to be in this internal distress state. However, healing doesn't happen when we're divided that way, when we're divided into groups, the us versus them, the right versus the wrong. Um, Healing doesn't happen that way and good relationships don't happen that way. You know, I think several things have happened. You know, I don't know if we're at a tipping point yet. I hope we're at a tipping point. I hope with the uh, mass shootings that continue to happen and lives that are lost, I hope we are at a point in which we're going to tip and we're going to say enough and no more of this. Like, I don't want to be scared to go to a concert or to go to the store and buy things. I don't want to be afraid to go out to a restaurant or a movie theater with my friends and enjoy life because of the threat that might somebody might show up with a weapon and create a lot of damage and kill people and critically injure people. I think uh, the Me Too movement, right, that started, what, two years ago now? You know, one of the takeaways for me from the Me Too movement is that sexual assault sexual harassment, you know, just sexual creepiness or sexual douchebaggery, however we call that, it's much more complicated than we originally thought. I, you know, I think when uh, the current president, when he was campaigning just recently before the 2016 election, and it came out that, you know, the Access Hollywood tape was released with him talking. And there were a lot of people who were just like, ah, that's just guy talk. That's just locker room talk, right? And, and I think there were a lot of men who also came out. Uh, President Obama was one of them who came out and said, that's not how I talk in the locker room. Like, that's not normal guy talk for me. And, and I think, you know, I, I commend the men who were kind of coming out and saying, no, like, not, that's not all men. And that's not me. Um, I think that, that that was necessary and that was uh, needed. But I also think one of the things that it did is it started to say, Okay, so we have bad men who talk this way and we have good men who don't talk this way. And again, I think it's a little bit more complex than that, right? And so I I also heard from some men who that made them very angry when President Obama came out and said, that's not how I talk or that's not locker room talk. Um, There was also, I'm not a big NFL person, but there was somebody in the NFL who had also said like, yeah, I've been in a lot of locker rooms and the talk that I've heard over the years in, in locker room didn't go to that extent. Like, I don't, I don't think that that's just normal locker room talk. Um, but I think we have to recognize, you know, when we divide men into good men versus bad men, it doesn't really help men, right? Um, a lot of men may have grown up thinking that's the way they talk. That's the men and the men in my family talk the way when I'm hanging out with my guy friends, that's, that's how we talk. And does that mean that I'm a per- perpetrator, right? Does, does that also mean that men can't also be abused, right? Or that men can't also be victims? So I think we have to look at that. You know, statistics would say that far more often males are perpetrators and females are victims, but that's not always the case, right? We, that binary doesn't always work. And I think that's where we have to say it's both and, like the statistics say this and Men can also be victims and females can be perpetrators. And it's more complex than maybe we want to think about. So in addition to racism structures, we also have patriarchal structures, which um, put, you know, white males, particularly in a position of privilege, more so than females. And then the further, you know, down you go, like heterosexuals have privilege over people of different sexual orientation. So if, you know, if you're hitting some of these factors and, you know, we did a couple years ago at my agency, we did like a big, we called it at the time, I think we called it discovery night. And the way these things worked is we would have anybody who was 
currently participating in one of our therapy groups. Uh, once a month, instead of their group, we would hold what we call discovery night. And on discovery night, you know, they, they would all come together. So if you were in a group, you would be there with anybody else who was in a group. And at the time, I think we had like four different groups running. Um, you could also, you were invited to bring your spouse if you wanted to discovery night. Sometimes the spouses were also in a group. So the spouse was coming as well, but not always. And so you were welcome or open to bring your spouse if you wanted to. And, you know, we had release assigned all of that. So we weren't um, violating confidentiality. And at discovery night, the therapist, you know, we'd kind of, it was a much more experiential group therapy and we would pick a topic and, you know, we did this for a year. And so we had different topics that we worked on that would help them in whatever group they were in um, and kind of come together. And I remember one of the topics, I don't know if it was actually the topic or it was kind of part of the topic, but we talked about privilege and several of the clients uh, who were white and who were male and who were heterosexual struggled on this night. And you could tell several of them were my clients. I could tell that they were struggling uh, because, you know, knowing their story, there was a lot of uh, things that they didn't experience that they would think of as privilege, right? They had lived some pretty hard lives. They had some t trauma stories. They had some abuse stories. Um, and so in that way, they didn't necessarily feel or it made them angry when we talked about privilege and they were hitting some of those check boxes that meant that they were privileged. And after that discovery night, several of them brought it up in sessions with me and we talked about it. And, you know, I could validate how they felt slighted in hitting some of those check boxes and, you know, totally understanding that in, in certain ways, their story did not put them in privilege, right? Having a trauma story or being abused, those definitely, those mental health issues um, definitely compromise any privilege we may have. And yet as we continued to work on, you know, psychology principles and different, uh, you know, just emotional intelligence, different things like this, many of the men that were my clients, um, but also men that were clients of other therapists at my clinic, um, would say, like, I'm having a shift around things. Like, I, I do see that I hit some of those uh, privileged checkboxes. You know, maybe I didn't come from a family of wealth, which would be another privilege. I didn't hit that one. But for some people, they're not hitting what I'm hitting. And they were able to kind of take in information and look at the both and. Like, I'm both underprivileged and I am privileged. And to be able to shift some of their paradigms, some of the way that they were thinking, and just uh, one of the ways that they were more conscientious. So two of my clients um, happened to be in a group that I did not, I was not the group leader, I wasn't involved in that group, but one of our female therapists at the office, she was involved in that group. And she said one of the things that changed pretty quickly after that discovery night where we talked about privilege, um, so their group I think ran from like 8.30 to 10. So, you know, it would get out and it was dark and she was the only female, you know, she was leading that group. It was an all men's group. And so she would be the only female, right? And she said, usually the men would leave and then I'd lock up the building and get out to my car. And she says, one of the things that I noticed soon after we had that discovery night is the men might go out and they might sit in their car, but they waited. They didn't just drive away. They waited for me to come down to lock the doors to get in my car and for me to drive away. And, you know, she talked about that in group. Many of them said, I started to realize like as a male, that is a privilege that I experience. I don't feel afraid walking out to my car on a dark night all by myself, but they could understand where she would feel a little frightened or she might feel a little bit uh, on edge as most women do, just when we're walking alone at dark, right? And there's bushes and stuff by our, where our cars are parked. And you never know, our office building is a, in a relatively safe area. We don't have a lot of crime in that area. And yet, you know, several years ago, longer before this, uh, we did actually have a shooting in our parking lot. And, and that was, you know, kind of 
rattling and and she was an employee there right I was there we we were impacted by that because we were there when that shooting happened in our parking lot so I think our society is built on a foundation of inequality right sometimes people will talk about and say this is not how our country works and on some levels this is how our country works right we did establish some hierarchy in terms of gender in terms of sexual orientation, in terms of race, all of those things were happening when the United States became a country and the structures were being put in place. So in systems of inequality, it's not surprising to find abuse of power and unawareness about privilege. And, you know, one of the things that I talked about with some of my male clients who were struggling is I'm not saying you're a bad person. You know, I know your story. We've been working together a long time. Like, I I really like you as a person. And there may have been some unawareness about privilege. There may have been some abuses of power. And, and abuses of power, I think, happens on a continuum. And that's something to be aware of. That's not something, you know, I'm, we're not shaming you about this. Um, but I think we're inviting you to maybe look at some things from a different perspective, a higher perspective. Um, and so oftentimes in these structures, they can be like with the Me Too movement, it was both about sex and it's about power. And I think that's a common um, thing as you know, many of us grew up in an in a environment or a culture that very much said heterosexual is the majority and heterosexual is right and anything beyond heterosexuality is wrong. And that was a binary that for many of us, we've had to look at and say, uh, while that heterosexuals may be a majority, we, we have to unlearn some of our thinking about whether that's right or whether that's wrong. Um, and we have to go through a process of unlearning. I think it's a process that every person has to go through in order to get some distance from the biases, the myths, and the prejudices that raise them. I think every one of us, no matter how educated our societies, how loving our families of origin were, we make moral and social judgments based on what we view as quote unquote normal. Um, and these normals can and should be unlearned or at least questioned. So um, years ago, one of the things I wanna talk about is David Foster Wallace, maybe you know about him, maybe you don't know about him. He was a philosopher, um, a pretty contemporary modern day philosopher. He actually died by suicide. Um, but he he gave a speech, um, you can look it up, you can Google it on the internet. And I think some people have kind of put like like a visuals to his, to his concept. But if you Google uh, what is water, uh, by David Foster Wallace. You'll pull up that video and it's worth taking the time to do that. But he tells the story, right? He says, um, two fish are swimming in the water. Two young fish are swimming in the water and a third older fish swims by and says, hey fellas, how's the water? And the old fish continues to swim on by and the two fish look at each other and say, what the hell is water? Um, so I think we need to look at like, what is water? And for many of us, this is the water has to do with like the water that we're swimming in has to do with the co color of our skin. It has to do with the gender we find ourselves in, the sexual orientation that we find ourselves in. And, and so we have these norms or we have these rules about how things work. And the way that I grew up, right, the, those norms, those myths, those biases, those beliefs, those attitudes, the things that raised me is the water. And I may not even be aware of water. And, you know, I may have that similar response. What the hell is water? And we have to kind of spend some time looking at and saying, what is water? A couple of years ago, I gave a um, presentation um, and it was shortly after the Me Too movement had broke. And I was specifically asked to come and give a presentation on the Me Too movement and the lessons we can learn and the takeaways from the Me Too movement. And I talked about this very thing. I talked about, you know, what is water and some of the rules, you know, for boys and girls when we're talking very young boys and girls, right? What are the messages that little kids are, are getting? And the, one of the examples I'll use often, and I used in this presentation, 
is I'll say, you know, let's say that, you know, let's say a, a young toddler just kind of learning how to walk and get kind of mastering that learn and then moving from that ability to walk to that ability to run, but it's kind of a shaky process and they're not, you know, real, they haven't mastered that yet. So let's say that you're watching, you know, this toddler kind of run down the sidewalk and they fall and they, they, you know, hurt their knee and they start crying. This is a common theme with, if you're around toddlers, like this happens and they start crying, you know, and I'll say, now let's say that that toddler is a girl. And what's our typical response if that's a girl? You know, and the audience would say things like, oh, we say, oh, come here. Do you need a hug? Here, let me kiss it better. Different things like that, right? Um, and then I'll say, does our response change if it's if the gender of that toddler is a boy? And I think sometimes we like to think that it doesn't change. I think uh, generations younger than me are trying to change if, if they're informed, if they've looked at some of those attitudes or those beliefs. I think they're trying to change that with their little boys. But I think it, the answer generally is yes. And when I was doing this presentation, many men in the audience said, yes, it does change. And I said, and, and what do we say to little boys if they fall and skin their knee on the sidewalk? And they would say, you know, we tell them, you're okay, buddy, jump up. Um, you know, like you're good, you're fine, go on, right? And one of the things I think that we need to look at, this is the water, right? We're saying to little girls, you need relationships. And when you're not feeling good or when you're sad or when you're hurt or anything like that, we invite you into relationships. And that's something she's learning at a core level. I turn to relationships. And for little boys, we're telling them, you're fine. You don't need anybody. You're good. You have this. You're on your own, right? And this happens at such a young age. Now, I realize this isn't the case for everybody, right? Again, there's the both and this may happen. And for some people, for little girls, they didn't learn that they were safe. For little girls, they learned that I'm on my own. Um, and, and so again, I think looking at like, what are some of the messages? What are some of the rules that we get? You know, when I do this presentation, I'll usually, you know, have a whiteboard or a, a pad of paper that is up there and I'm kind of dividing it and saying, you know, what are some of the rules that we learn as boys? You know, and boys will usually talk about don't cry, don't be weak, you know, be strong. How, you know, you always want sex. You want a lot of sex. Um, you know, don't be emotional. Uh, don't take no for an answer. You've got to conquer things. You know, one of the rules that often comes up as we're compiling this list is don't be a girl. Like that's one of the, you know, worst insults that a boy can get is to be called a girl. And so then I'll ask some of the females in the room, like, what are some of the rules that you grew up with? Right. And they'll say like, don't be angry. Don't be too strong. I have to be happy. I need to smile. I have to be nice. Um, I have to put others before myself. I have my, it's my job to make others feel good. Um, I shouldn't be selfish, right? It's my job to be desirable. I shouldn't necessarily want desires, especially sexual ones. Um, but it is my job to be pretty and to be desired by others. You know, not too desired though, because you can't be that girl. You know, that I don't have a voice, that I uh, defer to male voices. And I don't have a voice about males, about masculinity, about manhood. Like that that's just something as the weaker sex or as the, you know, uh, less superior sex that I shouldn't have an opinion about. But boys can have an opinion about me and boys can tell me how I should be as a female, but I shouldn't give that back to them. And then if we were to do that also about race, about sexual orientation, right? Those rules become very complex and yet most people know what the rules are. And then we have to ask that question, are these rules helping? We've all learned what the rules are, but what do we need to unlearn as we go through this? One of the other things I want to talk about is, um, especially when we're talking about like consent, for example, I think when we talk about teaching sex education in the school systems, I know a lot of people get, you know, 
uh, worked up over that. And, and there's a lot of fears. I think some of them are not rational fears or they're based on misinformation about what sex education would look like in the schools, right? Especially like elementary schools with young kids. For me, I think, um, and I, I, this isn't just me. I think this is how sex education would look and people who are talking about having sex education in younger grades, um, or I mean, not, yeah, sex education in younger grades. I think one of the ways that we need to be raising our kids is with this idea of consent, right? So one of my kids often would, you know, if I was at preschool with her, sometimes I volunteered in the preschool. If I was in preschool, like she, she just didn't think twice about going up and like if somebody was playing with a toy, she could go take that toy, right? And I would often have to say to her like, hey, is it okay for you to take this toy? Like this person, this, you know, this boy or this little girl was playing with that toy. Did you ask them, are you done with this? Did you ask them, hey, can I have a turn with this? You know, and she didn't, I was watching her. I knew that she hadn't, but I would make her go back and say like, are you done with this toy? Can I have a turn with this toy, right? And if the child said no, or if the child was in tears because she just walked up and took it, then she had to give it back, right? This is how consent looks like. I think we have to have conversations with our kids about, you know, hey, I saw that you girls were, you know, chasing Johnny on the playground and kind of trying to kiss him, which happens in elementary schools. And I'm just wondering if Johnny likes that, right? And maybe does Johnny like it? Maybe he likes it at the beginning, but by the end of the recess, he doesn't like it anymore. And does Johnny ever say to you, I want to stop this or I don't want to do this? right? Or vice versa, change the uh, gender of the child, right? I, I think there's a lot we can teach our kids about consent and about limits and what their boundaries are and how do we navigate in those relationships where we're asking for something that the other person may or may not actually want to do, right? And then if the other person says, no, no, you can't take a turn or no, I don't want to play this anymore. What does that look like? Do we say, okay, uh, that's an acceptable answer. No is an acceptable answer. And when a no is given, I have to accept that, right? When we get into things like consent, you know, I think as kids grow older, if that's something that they're just learning when they're young fish swimming in the water, that's just going to be something that they're going to apply in a lot of areas of their life, right? I think it also starts to have an impact on growing up with maybe entitlement and having to see the other person, whatever they are, right? We have to see them and we have to know how to engage with them. And I don't think we're doing a good job teaching our kids how to engage with other people and especially teaching our kids how to engage with people who are different than us. So one thing that I often will talk about is the, uh, the choice versus self-defense. So I think choice, right, is being included in the decision-making process beforehand. You know, I have a seat at the table. When I speak up, other people hear me. Versus self-defense is I make a move and then you're required to defend yourself, right? So how does this play out with consent? Well, if I say to somebody, hey, I'd really like to go out on a date with you, right? Or I'd really like to kiss you right now. I'm giving them a choice before I'm actually making a move, right? And so before I make a move and go in for a kiss, I am giving them a choice versus putting them in that position of moving in for a kiss. And then, then they're having to make a choice to defend themselves. Right. And a lot of people, I think one of the examples came out during the Me Too movement where, you know, the male, um, I can't remember his name, uh, but he's a, like, he's a Hollywood, he's in Hollywood, several shows, uh, TV series, I think. And he had been out with a girl who was not a Hollywood person, but he had been out with a girl and was surprised to learn after the fact that she didn't want to do a lot of the stuff that they did sexually, um, but that she didn't feel like she could say no. And, you know, she wasn't necessarily accusing him of rape or sexual assault or anything, but she was just saying, you know, I wasn't really given a choice. I went along to get along, but I didn't necessarily want to do those things. And I think things like this where choice versus self-defense, those kinds of ideas come into place. Am I giving you a choice and is no an option? Can you say no to me and I stop? Or do I feel like I have a right to take what I want 
and and I'll do that, right? And I assume that if you let me do that, then then it's okay. So one of the things that I'll talk about often is I'll say no means no, right? Well, I think actually there's a lot of people who would say no doesn't mean no. When my kids were growing up, they had a, we had a friend of my husband and myself, and he would often say to my kids, ask your mom if you can do this or whatever. And, you know, they'd ask. And, and if I said no, he would say, well, no means maybe. And I would always have to say to my kids, no does not mean maybe. Like maybe means maybe. No means no. And yes means yes. Like if I say no, then the answer is no, right? And, and I tried as a parent to make sure that I was following that. If I wasn't quite sure, if I needed to think about something, I would say to them, let me think about that. I'm going to have to get back to you. Um, so they weren't getting confusing messages about what no is and that no is no. I, when my one of my kids was young, we were building a house and our house, the house we were living in sold probably like it ended up, it, we thought it was about five months before the house that we were building was finished. I think it ended up being more like eight months before the house was finished. But during that time, we decided uh, to move in with my mom. And so, you know, I had four kids, my husband and myself. My mom was living by herself um, in her house. And so we moved in with her during these months. And often, like my mom and my one particular daughter uh, would butt heads on a lot of different issues. And they would fight about things, things that were pretty insignificant. And it kind of put me in this situation of, you know, being the parent to my child and being the daughter of my mom and feeling a lot of cognitive dissonance internally and just... Like I wanted my daughter to just like give up the fight and not, not want what she wanted, right? To just make the peace so that I didn't have to be in an uncomfortable situation. And yet I also was like, I can appreciate that she is asking for what she wants, that she is voicing her opinion, that she's, um, and I mean, these were things like which chair she sat, sat at at the dinner table, things like that. They weren't like major disrespectful things. Um, and I did have to talk with my mom and kind of say like, mom, like, I don't know that these arguments are really worth it. Like, you know, and, and we do give our kids choices. Like we don't have assigned seating and we don't like people can change things up, you know, and is this like, why is this important to you that she sits in the same chair every single time? So after our house was built, we had moved out and it was, I think it was like a Christmas, Christmas time that I first noticed this. And so we were, we'd been at my mom's house, I think for Christmas Eve actually. And we were getting ready to go out into the car and leave. And my mom said to my girls, come give grandma a kiss and a hug. And you know, my th three other girls ran and gave grandma a kiss and a hug before we were leaving. And this daughter was like, I don't want to. And she told my mom like, no. And you know, my mom kind of pouted and was doing a sad face and was like, oh, that makes grandma feel so bad. And, you know, I just kind of said, you guys go get out in the car, go, go get in the car, right? My husband took him out and was getting him in car seats and seat belted and everything. And I just said to my mom, hey mom, so, I mean, I know that my girls are young right now, but they're not always going to be little, right? Your, your granddaughters are going to grow up and they're going to be going on dates. And do you want to be the grandma that teaches them that they don't have to hug and kiss anybody they don't want to? Or do you want to be the grandma that teaches them, regardless of what they want, if somebody asks for a kiss and a hug, you are required to give that to them. You know, and she was kind of like, oh, yeah, I don't want to be that grandma. And I was like, look, this is probably a face. And if you allow her to decide for herself whether or not she wants to kiss and hug you, you know, she was like five at the time. I, like, I think the phase will be shorter, right? If you're making a big deal about it, I think this phase is going to last longer and possibly have more feelings towards each other than there needs to be, right? And, and thankfully, fortunately, my mom was able to see what I was saying and she was like, yeah, that's fine. I get it. I will, I, I will start asking my grandkids, you know, can grandma have a kiss and a hug? And if they say no, I will accept no. So when we talk about this, right, I think a lot of, for a lot of people, you know, you hear the saying sometimes that no means yes and yes means all the way. Um, and I think that's something that we have wrong and we need to be part of changing that 
and teaching our kids and teaching the friends of our kids that no means no. Um, the other thing, you know, that I w- will bring up when I'm doing presentations or talking with a client is I will ask, like, when do we usually say no? And I'll give them a time to think about it, right? Sometimes if I'm in a presentation, I might get several different answers, right? But the answer that I'm looking for and the answer that I usually, and, and sometimes people hit on it, right? Um, we usually say no when we're asked a question, right? Let's take this to a um, sexual situation. And if somebody's trying to, you know, kiss me, if somebody's trying to make out with me or more, right? And they don't ask me, like, hey, are you okay with this? Hey, this is how I'm feeling. Are you feeling the same way? Then it's harder to say no, right? I don't want to be be the one who's like, hey, by the way, if you're thinking of kissing me, the answer is no, right? Because then the person's like, well, I wasn't, so you're weird, right? I, I think that uh, risk of rejection, right? Or risk of like making us feel like we're actually better or more desirable than we are kind of gets in the way of that, right? Whereas if we ask a question up front, we're more likely to get an honest answer, especially if this person has a history with us or they know that we respect other people's answers. So I think that's also something to think about. I think it matters how consent is obtained, right? If uh, I, I would tell my kids, even sometimes with each other, right? When they were fighting over what clothes to wear, right? I often will say yes is a high five and a hell yeah, right? That's what yes is. Like I am all about that or like I am totally fine with this. If it's wearing them down to where somebody's saying fine or whatever, right? Or in cases of like racism where they just don't even feel like they can have a voice or speak something because of safety issues or danger issues, then that matters how consent is obtained, right? One of the things I also would tell my kids close to where we live is an amusement park, right? And often we, when my kids were younger, we haven't done it for several years, but when my kids were younger, we would get some season passes and that's kind of what we did to entertain them during the summer. And I would say to them, like, yes is not an all-day pass, right? Like, just because they say yes in the morning doesn't mean that it's yes in the afternoon or it's yes in the evening, right? Like, we continually have to be checking in. And if the answer changes, we have to be sensitive to that. We have to accept that the answer changed. Um, there's a great video. I've seen it, you know, circle, circulating on uh, social media and it's out there on the internet. If you look up um, consent and tea, T-E-A, like drinking tea, um, there's a great video that talks about consent and does a really good job. So I think some of the things like I was talking about, there's some things that we have to unlearn. Um, so here's some key steps that I got off of an article online that talk about the five key steps to unlearning. So the first step is we need to question everything. Right. Like I said at the beginning, I think as young kids, we do tend to question everything. We want to know where, why, why this, why that? How's this happening? We have to remember that why phase. We might also have to recognize what shut down that phase. Like, why did I learn to stop asking questions? Why did I learn to stop analyzing information as I got older and, and looking through that and looking at my experiences and the questions I have about them? You know, why was I not allowed to question my parents' answer, right? I mean, for one thing, I think as a kid, sometimes grownups seem to know all the answers. And sometimes grownups want to know all the answers, right? Because then your kids are going to listen to you, hopefully, and just do what you say. But I think as we get older, you know, as teenagers, oftentimes teenagers may realize, actually, the grownups don't know all the answers. And do we give space for that? You know, I think... um, Some of the kids that I see doing this really well right now are the Parkland students who are now, many of them, heading to college. And, you know, I know people have different opinions or feelings about them. I would say you have to ask yourself why. Why am I angry that these students are questioning traditions, right, or the way of doing things? And and why do I get angry about this? So I think one of the troubles that we had, you know, with the phase when we were young and we were asking questions that a lot of times we ran into is that if someone answered your why question, you had to take their word for it. 
and you didn't understand that you didn't have to take their word and you really couldn't access information differently. Um, but now that you're older and you're more literate, right? And you're capable of accessing the internet, you can start to investigate your own questions. Now we've done some, I think some great episodes just prior to this one that talk about how to seek out information and are you seeking out information that challenges you or are you seeking out information that just confirms the biases you already have? So I think it's important to let yourself have that voice and that space to air your questions. I also think the more privilege you have, the more important it is that you're using your voice on behalf of those who don't have as much privilege. And you're recognizing that and you're taking some responsibility with your voice. So the first one is to question everything. Number two, I think we have to identify contradictions and hypocrisy. So this isn't as easy and it's not as comfortable as it sounds on paper. Sometimes we won't like what our questions say about us if we're honest with ourselves about the contradictions or the hypocrisy that we have. You know, I, I think it's a difficult thing to recognize when we are being hypocritical. I was talking with a client just this last week in session and, and she was struggling with some things um, that she was recognizing and that she, she was checking about herself and didn't necessarily like the answer. And, you know, one of the things I told her is, I think it's good that you're wrestling with this. I think it's good that you're aware of your hypocrisy. I think it's good that you're aware of maybe what you're calling your manipulative skills. And I think you have to wrestle with this, right? You can't just decide that you're justified in doing what you're doing um, or that this is totally okay. And so that you keep doing what you're doing without questioning it, right? Kind of building some insensitivity to it because it's so familiar. I think it's good to stay in this place of being aware every time I do something that maybe is hypocritical to how I think or what I value, that I do feel something about that, right? That I do feel kind of this um, churning in my stomach and maybe some, you know, a fluttering in the chest of like, oh, this is not what I typically do. Now, maybe sometimes we have a legitimate reason for doing that. And so this is an exception because I think a lot of times there are exceptions to our moral codes. There are exceptions to our way of being, um, but we still have to recognize when we're making an exception and we have to be clear about why and what do I do after that to process that information. So, you know, I think there will be times for everybody like this when we know full well the answer to a question, but we resist coming to a conclusion because we're afraid of what the conclusion says. And so, you know, sometimes that tension isn't going to go away. We have to wrestle with it. We have to sit in cognitive dissonance. We have to come back to it. We start asking different questions. We start getting feedback from others who know us and who will be honest with us and who will we can process that through with, who won't just tell us what we want to hear. So this comes to another part of the unlearning process. Number three, you have to get uncomfortable. Uh, we won't have interesting conversations or discovery in our or discoveries in our comfort zone. So, you know, like I can say a lot about our comfort zone. I like my comfort zone. I'm sure you like your comfort zone. And your comfort zone is a perfectly good place to hang out in when you're enjoying a good novel, right? Or you're relaxing with friends or you're public speaking or you're giving a presentation, right? You have to be in a comfort zone in order to be yourself and to perform well. But your comfort zone can't handle you working through your internalized oppression um, or facing messed up truths about yourself and the world around you. In fact, it doesn't hurt to actively seek out your own discomfort in manageable doses, right? We don't want you shutting down. We don't want you going to the other extreme of, you know, only hanging out in your comfort zone. But when we tend to get uncomfortable, when we learn that we're contributing to a problem or we're benefiting from a privilege or we're feeling powerless to affect change. I recently had somebody um, in one of the Facebook groups that I'm in challenge me a little bit to do more, right? And I was saying like, I was totally acknowledging like, yes, it can shut me down. And here's the little pieces that I'm doing. And this person was saying, that's great. I really appreciate that you're doing those things. And can you do more? 
Well, of course that makes me uncomfortable, right? But I was saying like, yes, probably, probably I can. I don't always know how to do that. I don't always know what to do. Sometimes I feel powerless to affect change, but that discomfort can lead me to avoid reflecting and acting on these parts of our lives or having important conversations with people or saying, what do you see that I'm not seeing? What could I do that I don't, I'm not aware of, right? So we can't afford to avoid all of our discomforts. There will always be someone or something to unsettle us. And if you haven't been uncomfortable for a while, I think you need to check yourself on that because more than likely you are avoiding some things. Um, I think the world is full of injustices that lifetimes of fighting by countless people have not eradicated yet. And so we have to be checking with ourselves. How comfortable am I? How comfortable is my life? And how should I feel about that? I think the fourth uh, key to unlearning is to examine yourself carefully. It's one of the things I was talking about with this client I mentioned earlier this week. You know, and I said to her, I mean, one of the good things about this awareness and this self-examination, I said, it's a painful process when we're examining ourselves and we see things and we're like, oh, that's hypocritical, or I don't like that I'm doing this, or is this okay that I did this? You know, if, if I have a reason for making this exception, is that okay? Is that just me convincing myself I'm okay doing that? But I told her, I said, one of the benefits to careful self-examination is you're not typically blindsided. You know, and when people give you feedback or when people call you out, you've already looked at that. You already know that, right? That's not a reason to say, I don't have to accept this feedback because I already know this about myself. But I think it's a way of being able to say, you know, we're not blindsided. And so we can say, yeah, do you want to have a conversation about that? Why don't you tell me how that felt for you? Or why don't you tell me what you see about that? Right. And I'm not so thrown off my game that I can't engage in a dialogue about that. We need to be able to examine the parts of ourselves that are problem that are a problem. Um, the parts of ourselves that can be oppressive or that make us submissive. And so I think, you know, if, if you don't know people different than you, you have to examine what that's about and how can you engage with people who are different than you, right? And how do you engage with people who are different than you? And if you're aware of your privileges, right, then you know when it's your turn to listen and to believe the people who are different than you, who maybe experience less privilege than you, it's not my place to say that's not true or that's not real or that's not a valid point. It's my place to listen and to seek understanding and to take their voice as valid and give them a seat at my table. The fifth step or the fifth key to unlearning is the typical rinse and repeat. Right? We have to keep doing this over and over again. We have to be constantly collecting new information, right? not just talking to like-minded people and confirming or disconfirming our biases. We have to look at what, what do I do to survive in patriarchal cultures right? or in institutional structures that maybe favor privilege or favor me or don't favor others. Um, and so that means that the unlearning process is on ongoing and it's lifelong. I think that healing always begins on the individual level. We have to open our ears to what's being said, whether it's a movement, whether it's a dissent, whether it's discord, we have to open our ears to what is being said. We have to seek out information that challenges us, that makes us uncomfortable. I think we have to have difficult conversations. And oftentimes we need to recognize in those difficult conversations, my role may be listening and asking some questions and seeking understanding and believing somebody different than me. I think we have to create a culture for ourselves individually in which we can call each other out without shutting each other down, right? We don't need to shame each other, but we do need to be able to say like, hey, that was harsh or hey i noticed that was difficult you for you to hear something that was contrary to one of your beliefs i think we have to develop the ability for both anger and love 
right? We have to live in the both and. I can be angry about things and I can love people. I can have hope and I can grieve things. I can have hope and I can also be afraid, right? We have to spend more time in the both and and hold contradicting feelings and not just eliminate one because it makes us feel better. Um, I think we have to ask questions and we have to honor the answer. Um, I recently did this again in one of the Facebook groups I'm in where I definitely am privileged. There are, are probably more people of color in that group than white people. And I, I asked an honest question and, and made sure that the way I framed the question, right, I was acknowledging privilege. I was saying I'm totally open to feedback. Like I can be called out if I'm not seeing something. And it actually led to some really good comments and a real, really good thread for me. I appreciated what people were saying. People were able to make points that I could not have seen with my privilege. So I think, you know, we have to get better at dialogue. We have to get better at asking questions. We have to get better at listening to people. Um, I think we need to build victim empathy. I, you know, I think we have a culture of victim blame. And if you're a victim of something, it's your fault, right? And, and I think one of the reasons that that happens, one of the psychological reasons that that happens is because if I can blame a victim, then it makes me feel like I'm safer, right? Because I wouldn't be that stupid or I wouldn't do those things. Um, and so we have to be sensitive to the tendency to blame victims instead of having empathy for victims, right? And I think that's how we change our culture. Recently here in Utah, like the end of June, we had a case in which it was a college student who was attending the University of Utah. She was from California and she had flown home to attend her grandma's funeral and was coming back to Salt Lake Airport. Um, they had her on cameras. She, you know, she took, I think it was a lift. She took a lift to a certain place and they showed her getting in the car, right? They knew the vehicle number of the lift. They knew who had picked her up. And when they talked to the lift driver, he said, you know, this is where I dropped her off. This is was her, this was her intended destination. She was meeting somebody. It was at a park and it was late at night. It was, I think, early morning hours and she was meeting somebody at the park. And then the trail kind of went cold after that. You know, I'm, I'm sure the police investigated the Lyft driver, but eventually they cleared him as a suspect. I don't know that he was ever a named suspect, but they cleared him. And, you know, it was maybe, I think, a week later that they found some remains and they were able to arrest uh, the person responsible for this. And it was a horrible case, right? I mean, the details of it are, you know, can make you feel sick as to what happened um, to this young college girl. And I was reading some of the articles online. I was interested, you know, what, what details were being released to the press. I think most people in Utah were following this case. Um, you know, many of us have college students of our own, and that's one of the, you know, scariest things that could happen as a parent. And sometimes I will read comments. I know I have to prepare myself when I read comments on anything because we do not dialogue well together. And so I was reading some of the comments and there were a lot of people, both males and females, who were saying, what in the hell was she doing at a park at this time in the morning? Like, why would she go there, right? And again, that's that tendency to victim blame, right? I want to live in a world where as a female, I could go anywhere and nothing's going to happen to me because nobody feels like they have the right to do anything to me, right? That I could go running at night, that I could you know, just do anything all by myself and be safe. We don't have that world. And the more that we've blamed victims and question why they would do certain things, we're moving away from creating a culture in which everybody gets to live as themselves and move about without putting themselves in danger, right? Or having themselves encounter a dangerous, dangerous situation because of the person that they encounter. I also think we have to just have more conversations about everything. I think we have to, you know, I was a couple years ago, I was attending the ITAP symposium down in Arizona and Pat Love, who is a well-known Imago therapist, and she's written several books and I really respect and admire her. She was one of the keynote speakers that year. And I happened to 
you know, through a series of events, I happened to end up going to dinner with her and a group of people. Probably there was maybe like four or five of us and her. And one of the things, you know, she's older than I am. She, I think she's in her 60s. But one of the things as we sat at that dinner table, we had a wide range of ages, right? She was in her 60s. I was in my late 40s. Um, there were people in their early 40s, late 30s, early 30s, probably covered the age range that was at the table. And I watched her engage in conversation with everybody and bring up topics of conversation that included everybody at the table. And I walked away from that dinner just thinking, like, I just watched somebody masterfully sit at a dinner table and give everybody a voice and ask questions that led to some great dialogue and listen to everybody's answers and then ask another great question that continued to deepen the conversation and deepen the dialogue. And that was one thing that I was really impressed with and that has stayed with me and that I want to, I was like, I I might have some pretty good communication skills, but I was like, there's definitely some things that I can learn from her. And so I think again, learning how to have better conversations. I think it's that healing on an individual level that will lead to constructive and productive dialogue that begins to heal the communities, that begins to heal and make reparations for wrongs done and brings us together as a, as a community, as a nation, as a state, whatever that looks like. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember, there is something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story till it's finished. Thanks. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.